Welcome back to another episode of Startups for the Rest of Us. I'm Rob Walling, and today I'm joined by fan favorite Derek Reimer. He's the founder of Savvy Cal, and he and I have known each other now for 12, 13 years. And this is a good episode of just discussing several topics related to building SaaS, balancing profitability versus growth, deciding which features to build and not. We go into some very specific features recently that Derek has decided to build and those he has not decided to build, and then the thought process behind them. And I really like doing case studies like this because you'll hear in the episode, you can just hear the thought process of an experienced and very gifted product thinker. And I hope that that's enlightening for you today if you know, you're an early stage SaaS founder or someone maybe who isn't as far along in terms of making product decisions, deciding what do we build and not and how do we build it. Because learning from someone like Derek about how to do those things is, uh, is always a good idea. Before we dive into that, I wanted to let you know that applications for Tiny Seeds Next Batch are now open. They're open for about the next two weeks. If you're the founder of a bootstrapped or mostly bootstrapped SaaS company doing anywhere from $500 MRR and up, and you might be interested in a small amount of investment and a large amount of mentorship and advice, head to tinyseed.com apply for more information and to apply for this batch. We are hosting batches in the America's time zones as well as the European time zones. Head to tinyseed.com to learn more and apply. In addition to that, we are now up to 957 worldwide ratings in Apple Podcasts. It would be amazing if you have never given us that five-star rating. You don't have to write a review. You can just click five stars. Some recent reviews include J.R. Kahatal, who says this is exactly what I was looking for. Cycling Steve from the UK says every episode is jam-packed with actionable advice. Rob is very grounded, takes time to answer user questions the best way he can. He even went above and beyond to email me directly back regarding a question because he knew it was urgent. Kudos. And Mama Trolley from Denmark says, consistently delivering quality content can highly recommend if you are into startups. So thanks so much for those reviews. And I'm on my drive to get to 1,000 reviews. There are actually very few podcasts that have 1,000 ratings in Apple Podcasts. So it'd be amazing if you could uh, help me out on that journey. And with that, let's dive into our conversation. Derek Reimer, welcome back to the show, sir. Thanks for having me back. Yeah, by popular demand, you're a fan favorite guest. People, uh, when I ask, I'll, I'll see someone at a microconf or an in-person event, and we start talking about startups for the rest of us, and that's when I do customer development, right? I'm yep. like, so yep. what do you like? Wow, what could I improve? And what are your favorite episodes? And what's interesting is I'll find I'll ask someone who's like, I'm a big fan, been listening for years, and then it's like, cool. What are your most recent favorite episodes? And they'll remember the things they really like, and they just forget the things they don't is what I've noticed. Like, I'll be like, well, what about when I interviewed the, you know, this one author who had the, this, the jobs to be done book? Totally don't remember that. You know, it's like, well, obviously either you skipped it or, which is fine, or you just, you just weren't into it, you know? And I kind of know that feeling too, but yeah, your name comes up a lot as well as like Anar and Tracy and I don't know, Jordan and Craig Hewitt. You know, there's a lot of folks that people really like hearing, hearing their opinions on things. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, I, I imagine part of it too is like, you and I know each other so well from having built a company together that, you know, the rapport is there, which I think always, I mean, it always contributes to just easier conversation, probably hopefully easier listening. It's very natural. 
Yep. Right, and we, and we kind of know where it's going. Yep. This is very similar to, I guess we, it, when you and I hang out and have a, have a beverage for happy hour, this is like a similar train of conversation. Although we may yep. get into more, we may name more names, you know, at the mm-hmm. happy hour. But so I want to I want to kick us off. I have several topics we can run through today. First thing I wanted to do was was touch on a. a a topic that we talked about last time you were on the show where I had asked you, you're really good at product. You're really good at development too, but like making product decisions is hard and it's hard to know what to build next. It's hard to know what not to build. And then there's a whole other thing of how to build it, how it should look. And I I don't think we'll get into that today, but just that decision, that filtering process of you're getting all these customer requests and deciding what what to do and what order and all that stuff. Last time we talked about generally, and I said, how do you decide? And you kind of said a, a high level thing. And I listened back to that one and I realized, you know what? I think an example could be really helpful. So what I want to ask is like, what recent feature, recent is whatever you want it to be, what recent feature did you ship that you, you know, feel like was the right decision? And what was the logic behind deciding to do that? Whether it was tons of customer requests or whether you just knew in your founder gut or whether it was a competitor, you know, there's a bunch of reasons why you would do it. And then let's touch on like one feature or more, frankly, that you haven't built, probably aren't going to build and why. So let's, let's start with that first one. Like what have you launched that you, you think is a really, really good feature? Yeah, so one of my one of my favorite ones that we shipped this summer, I think it was about a month ago, is this feature. It's it's kind of a simple one, but it had been on my radar for a little while, and it's sort of just in reviewing my backlog. And I like to keep a backlog of things, just ideas. Anytime someone requests something, I usually log it in there, and then sort of store up. You know, anytime someone mentions it in a Help Scout conversation, I drop a link to it just as kind of a, a knowledge repository. And this one had been floating around and resurfacing for a while. And it's basically a, a little feature that allows you to toggle on a, a setting to require approval for new bookings before they make it onto your calendar. So, you know, think like if you're if you're really busy and say you've you're just a busy person in general and you have one reusable link that is just out in the wild. People use it all the time. We often have kind of our one multi-use link that maybe we store in our text expander or whatever, and it's just the one that gets shared around, usually like slash chat um, after your name, right? So a lot of times people who are who are in really high demand will just see people using their link and grabbing time on their calendar. And so there's something very visceral with people who feel this pain. It's like, this is really a major problem. And so they either resort to like not having a multi-use link or using an unguessable URL or just other solutions that just don't don't quite feel right and feel like we could be doing something on the product side to, to alleviate this. This also happened to be like a, one of the favorite features from a scheduling tool called X.AI that was acquired and then shut down last year. So I hear, you know, anyone who comes over from X.AI is likely to request this one, right? So it's been it's been coming up over and over. But again, it's just one of those decisions, like even though it's just a toggle in the UI and just a just a slight modification to the booking flow, it's still not a foregone conclusion that we're gonna build it. But the things that really tipped me over the edge on it were were one, just strong visceral demand from a group of people who are really passionate. And like I would say scheduling power users. And we have gradually become a tool that I think a lot of people in their minds think of it as 
sort of a, a scheduling power tool. Like, you know, obviously when you're, when you're young, you're, you're behind the competition in a lot of different ways. So it's hard to, it's hard to foster that perception early on, but we've been at it for a few years now and have mostly caught up on feature parity. And now people actually see us once they get in the product, they realize that a lot of our UX is an improvement over the status quo and they can, they can do more things to guard their time. They can use like a ranked availability feature and some of these things that we have that help people who care a lot about shielding their time protect it basically. So, so this one felt like it was philosophically aligned with where our product's going. It doesn't overcomplicate the product in confusing ways. Like most of the complexity actually lives under the surface and for the user, it's just like, do you want to enable this or not? And so, yeah, it was like, it was a combination of strong demand, differentiation, alignment with kind of the philosophy of what we want SavvyCal to be. And like, I always think about too, is this attracting the right kind of user, the kind of user that we feel like we're able to serve well. And I think those who care about toggling this on is an ideal user of SavvyCal because of the things we care about. Yeah. I really like that. I think that's something that more founder, I don't think that's intuitive for a lot of people. And the fact that you've just called it out, I think is a huge, a huge deal. It's like how many people will use it and what kind of customer will use it. Yep. That's super cool. Yeah, there's a certain I think there's a certain magnetism that features have and they can they can draw in more of the people that that you are really in the sweet spot for. We have built some things. I'm trying to think if I have a specific example. I might think of one in a minute, but I feel like there are some features that we build that suddenly start attracting people who aren't a super good fit. And that's that's always just uh it can be a frustrating process for the user because they're all excited and they think they think SavvyCal is going to be the tool for them and then realize that we're missing the mark on a number of things, but they were attracted by this one thing. So you just I just want to be mindful and careful about just thinking about that, giving some thought to that when marketing features and building them. How about on the flip side, a feature or features that for the foreseeable future, you know, it is not going to build or a recent thing you decided we're not building and and what was the thought process there? Yeah. So one of the big ones is SMS notifications. So this one does come up. It's certainly requested from time to time. And it's a feature that a lot of other scheduling tools have built into them. Think of like classic examples in my mind are ones that are like you're, you know, going to get a haircut or a dentist appointment or something. Like they're often sending text messages to remind you. And this is one where I've struggled a lot with it, trying to understand why people want it because I personally never want to receive a text message from a scheduling tool. And I think I do have, even though I'm not like a perfect representation of my customers, I think, you know, a lot of my customers are similar to me in that, you know, we're using this for kind of business to business meeting scheduling and we're near our calendars a lot and we probably have Google Calendar installed on our phone and we'll get like a, a little notification through there. So like, I don't know, just the the need for it kind of eludes me a little bit. And then I've spoken to a number of folks who have endeavored to do this. Actually, I was speaking to some former colleagues at Drip and they added SMS support into the product. And I got to hear some war stories about just how much of a bear that is to uh, to maintain and things like, you think dealing with email spam is bad, wait until you deal with all the regulations and constraints around sending text messages on behalf of people. Even though there's tools like Twilio, which are amazing and give you a nice API on top of the lower level SMS stuff, it's still certainly doesn't solve all of the complexity that you have to deal with when doing this. And so it's just kind of one of those giant 
iceberg features, like certain percentage of people would just toggle it on, like, sure, send a text message. Yeah, why not? And maybe not even give much thought to it, but under the covers, there's so much complexity to maintain. And there are honestly other ways around it too. People can accomplish this with Zapier. You know, there's there's different integrations that you can connect to your Zapier account. So if you really need this, you can do it today. And I would kind of much rather push that complexity off to Zapier for, for the foreseeable future. Yeah, and and with an N of two, one being you and me being the second one, I would never use that feature. And so I wonder yep. if, and, and we, uh, Tiny Seed Microconf are obviously a Savvy Cal customer. And so would it attract the right kind of customers, going back to the feature you, you know that you said earlier? And obviously, if you listen to this podcast, it's like two people does not a focus group make. I can imagine you know, my uncle who's a realtor wanting to turn that on, right? And it's like, is that where Savicow wants to be right now? Because I think more perhaps sophisticated, like founders, entrepreneurs, executives, tech entrepreneurs, tech senior leaders, whatever it, you know, it is that you're focused on a Savical, those folks are probably more in our line, you know, in our situation where I'm also in front of my calendar all day and my phone buzzes with a little reminder and that's all I need. And, you know, it's an interesting, interesting filter. Yeah. Another one that kind of comes to mind is, so some people use SavvyCal, a very small percentage of our customers use SavvyCal for a lot of internal scheduling, which theoretically is a pretty powerful way to use it, right? Like you share a booking link to someone inside internal to your company and they can use that as sort of a curated window into your availability, um, even though most most companies of, of a certain size these days are either using the built-in Google Calendar sharing technology, Microsoft Outlook has it also. So then there's like a lot of sophisticated tooling built up in those ecosystems around sharing calendars with your colleagues and adding colleagues and finding times that work for everybody and doing collective scheduling. Like So a lot of these problems are sort of already solved, which is why I've been hesitant to try to build SavvyCal as an ideal solution for doing internal scheduling. It's like, you can use it for that, but it's probably not going to be better than the built-in bundled solutions into, into the ecosystem. And like, I had some requests the other day from a customer that he was asking for the ability for events created by SavvyCal to be editable by anybody added on the calendar invite, which struck me as curious. So I, I dug into it a little bit and asked him some more questions and discovered that he was basically using this as a way to, to use Round Robin and put time on one of their internal team members' calendars. And then from that point, that person would sort of take ownership of the calendar event and literally take ownership of the event, like it would get transferred. So that would sever our connection to the event because it would get a new owner in the calendar system. And then they would add external people onto the calendar event and reschedule it if needed. And this was just causing all kinds of problems with our ability to stay in sync with that calendar event. And I thought for a second, like, we need to solve some of these problems and maybe add a setting to allow it to be editable. But then realize, like, for anyone who's doing the traditional path of, like, sending a link, scheduling something with an external party, you would never want it to be fully editable by all parties. And a lot of these other problems just simply don't surface for that happy path. Right. And when that comes up, you have to say, oh, is this a new market that we should build for? Like, is this a use case that no one has been paying attention to and this can open up a bunch of new customers and are these the customers we want to work with? Can this help alter my vision, right? We, you have a pretty strong vision for your product. I'm the same way. And sometimes you get a, a feature request and you're like, that's not in my vision, but should it be? <laughs> is this such an opportunity, like building workflows, like building automations, you know? It's like this changes the whole direction, but it, it could be amazing. Or is this one of those things I'm going to add that I'm going to regret? 
because one person wanted it or the people who do want it are just not good fits for us or they're using it in a way that really that's not where we're headed. We can grow faster. We can get more customers through easier wins. Yeah, it's it's important not to get too myopic. Sometimes you do you do want to keep an open mind, right? And especially, I think, as a pretty horizontally positioned product, there's all the more... It's more difficult to, to know whether you're making the right decisions in general because you have a lot of different, you have a variety of people using the product. Most SavvyCal users care about creating an optimal booking experience, but they are horizontal across a lot of different industries and use cases. So like making sure you're staying in line with what your market needs is extra difficult when you're positioned in this way. Which is why I'm a big fan of of logging most things. Uh, this is runs counter to that traditional like 37 signals wisdom of like never write down a feature request and just expect it to resurface if it's important. I used to think that way, but more and more I don't trust my own brain to remember <laughs> when certain trends start to emerge because there's so much noise all the time. So I like to log these in, in a place. I use our backlog for it. Some people are viscerally opposed to that, but you know, even just a spreadsheet could be a good place to just kind of keep track. Like how many times has this come up? Has this come up more recently? Should I be thinking strategically about like potentially building this thing? And that's just helpful. And I review it periodically and just uh, kind of keep it fresh in my mind. Yeah, I can imagine much like I will take notes on anything whether when I used to think of business ideas or now I'll think of like, oh, this interesting marketing approach or maybe I should write a book chapter about this or record a podcast episode about this crazy topic. And I just write all that stuff down in notebooks and periodically just like it's a backlog. It's a backlog of ideas and periodically I'll revisit them. And usually it's like, hey, that's not a good idea and here's why. But in a year, it might be a good idea because you might change direction. You know, strategy changes over time and the direction of your product and your vision, it can change. And so I can see that being valuable. That was super helpful man. I'm glad we did that. Yeah. Cause that I like, it's the, the specifics of those examples and hearing that both the features you mentioned are completely reasonable. And yet you said no. And then you said why, as I remember being a, like a brand new baby founder and just feature request. And it was like, I just build, I'm going to just build everything people want. And that's, that's where I struggle with like the customer development or leaning too much into just build what your customers want. And then you'll hit product market fit because I, I don't think that's actually true. You have to have that filter, that founder filter to keep that vision in line and to keep the product going in a direction that doesn't just duplicate all your competitors, which is often what like less technical users want. So more technical users often want you to just build shit that's just way too complicated, you know, and, and your power users can push you in a direction where it's like you build an unusable product or a product that then no one else wants to, you know, there's all these dangers with listening to every request a customer makes. There's a reason you're the founder and your customers are not of, of your particular company. It's like you have to like, uh, much like guarding the quality of your code base, we have to guard the quality of our product, right? The the UX and the clutter and the, the overwhelm that can happen by just putting a bunch of settings everywhere. Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty common trope, but learning when to say no is just extremely valuable because you can't be everything for everyone. And it's hard to resist that temptation, especially early on when you're just clamoring to get any customers to pay you and try to get some kind of traction. Like it's, it's very difficult to stick to your vision and know when to say no to certain things, but especially as, and I think that part in one sense gets a little easier as you go and you have more traction, you have a better sense of who your market is. So it's, it's not for the faint of heart in the early days to, to try to solve that equation. But uh, yeah, that's just an important skill to, to develop. And as you said, it does get easier. It's really hard in the early days. And then you're a year, two, three in. I think the filtering process is much 
easier. Tim Cook, Apple, he says there will always be more great ideas than we can implement. We are going to have to say no to some great ideas. And I, I think that's being an entrepreneur as well. Yeah. So I want to switch up our topic and get your opinion on something. It's a Twitter-related thing. And so oh boy. I know. <laughs> here, <laughs> here we go. Why did I even... Oh, I, because I, I don't normally go to the, my home feed in Twitter. It's just not something that I particularly enjoy, even though I follow, I follow you. And, but it does, tweets get surfaced, you know, from you and, and people that I want to hear from otherwise. So I was reading this email newsletter. It's for bootstrappers, indie hackers. It's called High Signal. And... In it, he linked to a tweet where a founder who I don't know, but it's a founder who I guess has bootstrapped to like a million dollars in ARR. And he says, I'm interested in investing in indie SaaS businesses. And he has some criteria and he's looking to put in like 10K or more per investment and wants to buy at least 25% of the company. And those terms, they're bad, right? They're like, they're not in line with the market. And so I read through it and I was like, whoa, that is a, you know, you know, let's say 10K for 25% or let's say 50K for 25%, whatever the number is, compare that to tiny seeds valuations or YC's valuation, any accelerator. And frankly, accelerators are lower valuations than if you were to go get angel money, right? Because accelerators bring the community and all the mentorship and the advice and all that. So tiny seed valuations, say 120 to 220 for 10 to 12%, whatever, you know, those numbers are substantially higher than 10 20, 30K for 25%. Not only that, but if a founder came to us and we're going to invest at the same, usually at the same phases, he was talking 1K to 10K MRR and Tiny Seed's in that, you know, in that realm plus higher, obviously. But if a founder came to us and applied to Tiny Seed and we really liked them and they were doing five or 10K and they told us they sold 25% of their company to someone for a low five figure amount, we would be pretty unlikely to fund them. Like it can ruin your cap table. It can remove optionality. So when I read that, and here's the thing, man, I'm into, especially online, I always try to give people the benefit of the doubt and try to give what uh, Patrick Campbell, uh, well, he's now with ProfitWell. They have a value in their company called MCI. It's the most charitable interpretation. Within the company, one of our values is if someone writes something in Slack, if someone says something in a meeting, please give the most charitable interpretation. And that's what I have tried to do for years, right? Online, it's just kind of how I roll. And so when I read that, I'm like, I don't think this guy's trying to screw people. I think he is interested in investing and these are the numbers that make sense to him. And in the thread that follows, it's actually a good thread. Like some people like your valuation's too low. And he said, well, here's how I got to that. And he's saying like 1K a month is 12K ARR and then a 3X to 7X ARR multiple is 36 to, you know, whatever, you can do the numbers. But it's not what, it's not typically how investment, especially in, you know, early stage SaaS is, is valued. So I was like, well, I want to reply to this, but truthfully, should I? Like, is it my plan? Like, am I doing a public service? Because here's what you, here's what annoys me is when I'm having a conversation with someone or I'm on Twitter or I used to get pulled into conversations that it's like, this is none of your business. Like, why are you nosing in on my, you know, it's like, here we are talking about features on Drip and someone comes in and is just like, well, I have a support issue, blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, what are you doing, man? Like, <laughs> this is, the, you know, this is like the worst of social media, I think, right? It's just, mm-hmm. everyone just wants this mouthing off and is like, blah, blah, blah. So I don't want to be this guy who comes in and is just like, you're way out of whack, man. Like, this isn't good. But also, I don't want founders, <laughs> I don't want founders to screw their cap table. So it's like, is it a public service announcement to chime in? Or is it, and of course I would do it very thoughtfully and tactfully. I would try to do it, but who knows? They may not give me the charitable interpretation and it may blow up into some, you know, some 
stupid argument fest, which of course I would tap out of. I'm a one and done. Remember my Twitter rule? Yeah. If someone like picks a fight with me, one and done, I post one response and it might be two tweets or three tweets in a chain, but like, here's my stance. And then when they come back with the, oh, but, and I pick an, oh, and that sentence is incorrect, you know, and they start quoting each individual word and pointing out how you miss you. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not gonna, I'm done. <laughs> I'm done, one and done. Yeah. So all that said, I'm curious your take. Yeah, I mean, I think a big part of the answer comes down to whether you have the stomach for for wading into the fray a little bit, you know, because we know how these discussions can often go and they turn into turn into like needing to die on some hill over something or often often the cases with Twitter it's like it's it, they're short short messages so you have to be efficient in use of words but also it's impossible to capture all the nuance so the medium is limiting in that way but all those caveats aside like I've known you to be a, a fairly disciplined one in sticking to your your kind of one and done not taking the bait you know and just just sort of speak what you know to be true and I think you are kind of the right authority on this to to provide context to the conversation in a thoughtful manner. So I would say like, it seems very much in line with just where your career's at and what you're an expert in to provide a little bit of commentary into the public sphere on this, provided you have the stomach for what potentially could devolve into a classic Twitter debate. Do you want to get in that fight? Yeah. Well, yeah. A, a, I appreciate that. B, you should tell that to my YouTube commenters on our Microsoft <laughs> channel because, dude, I did this whole video about like growing Hittail to 30K a month and talked about the process and this and that. And one person said, I call BS on this. I went to Hittail.com and it doesn't exist. <laughs> and uh, in the video, I said, I sold it seven years. You know, it's just instant like yeah. the, I'm not credible. Oh, that's uh, but anyways, I appreciate that. And that is honestly, that has gone through my head. I typed up a response and I hadn't sent it when I, I had sent this tweet to you and said, you know, let's talk about this on the show today. Since then, I, re, I did reply. And I just felt eventually like, you know what? I'm going to try it. Like if, if it devolves into something, I do have the stomach to just one and done it, to agree to disagree basically, which is fine. So I responded and I said, genuine comment, not being a hater, but these terms are far under market. SaaS at this phase can easily raise at low seven figure valuations from accelerators and angels, even those that don't come with VC strings attached. Because that was another thing. Someone said, well, they can raise at high valuations. And he said, yeah, but then you have venture strings attached. And it's like, well, that's not true actually <laughs> from like Tiny Seed or other angels. right? And then I said, funding at these terms will damage your cap table per what I just said. And the cool part of it, it doesn't happen very often, but he responded and he said, that might be, I've had a few people say that in the comments already, which is fine. In the end, my goal is to invest in people and businesses in terms that are fair for everyone. I'll see what this gets me in opportunities and will adjust if needed. Nice. Which is like a wow. perfectly reasonable, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. It wasn't some big argument. And then he actually posted something later and said, I've learned a lot, it, just in general, he said, I learned a lot from reactions to this tweet. One, these are lower multiples than raising. Some people can raise at 30 plus multiples. That's really awesome, but won't be for me. And maybe I should just acquire 100% of the businesses instead. Just interesting. So yeah, I thought it was cool. It was like a sensible, and, and we don't know each, here's the thing. If we knew each other, then you know, you know if you and I are having this conversation, it's going to be similar on Twitter, right? Or I'm doing it with A&R, Ruby or anybody it's going to be civil but like when it's when people don't know each other this stuff goes sideways usually yeah and we don't know each other and so i thought that was that was just a redemptive arc i'm still not gonna do twitter though i'm still <laughs> not gonna do it it's just not. <laughs> probably a good call yeah i uh, don't overgeneralize this one but uh yeah i'm glad this one worked out and yeah honestly i mean it sounds like just speaking about the topic it, overall there's probably a lot of still kind of misunderstanding about what's possible in the funding realm, you know, and that's where like a tiny seed can sort of be an authority on 
talking about this kind of alternative funding strategy. People think in this binary, like it's either venture capital or like this, these are, this feels like shark tank valuations or something, you know, like very, like, I don't know, super high risk, but it's not venture capital. So we're going to take 30% of your company. And he had more nuance around. I'm not saying he's trying to be a shark, but like, it just feels like a misconception about what this middle ground type of funding and how this space has evolved in the last few years. So and continues to do so. Yeah. So I have a question then, staying on the topic of Twitter. I'm on your Twitter profile. It's twitter.com slash Derek Reimer. Folks want to subscribe and get you over that 9,000 follower mark. Look at you. You're almost at 8,700. I know that's <laughs> yeah. a KPI you track. <laughs> yeah, I know you don't. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you have the newsletter feature at the top where people can just one click. I mean, I'm going to click subscribe and it says, yeah, yeah. So they already have my email. So if I confirm it, they being Twitter already has it. So cool. So now I'll get an email from review. So Twitter bought review a couple years ago now, whatever. And they now have built it in. The only way you can subscribe is review. We looked at it. We being microconf, tiny seed, Starts the rest of us, robwalling.com, like every Twitter account that we have. I was like, I'd love to do this because I like to build lists. And when I want to do it, I can only use review. And I can't, the only way I can do is, can use Drip or any other tool is to like pipe it in via Zapier. So then it's a terrible user experience because you subscribe, you get an email from review that confirms your subscription. And then suddenly, and it's very upfront of like, you're going to get the review newsletter. Like review is all over it. It's not, it's not white labeled to be like, you're going to get Rob Walling's newsletter. It's like, you're going to get the review newsletter and Rob Walling might be involved with it. You know, it's like way down. (laughs) So it's like to suddenly be like, Hey, I'm sending this from drip. It feels not very cool. So that's why we didn't do it. But I'm curious, you know, it says you have 2,300 people subscribed. So are you using review to send? Sounds like you guys did actually a lot more diligence on the the overall experience for this. Part of the motivation, so I did this a couple months ago, around the time that I kind of stopped doing the podcast for, for the summer. And like I had seen someone remark, again, this is something I know to be true, like you always want to own your own the platform as much as possible, own your list. And, you know, I'm like, I participate in Twitter and I get new followers all the time. But like most of those people, like if Twitter were to go away or I decided I want to stop using it, like all of that would be gone. So I was like, this is an interesting kind of way to put a subscribe button right front and center. And I have not been a good steward of my uh, mailing list so far. And I haven't, I haven't emailed them in probably well over a year at this point. So sort of like one, I'm not, I'm not super active on mailing my, my email list, which means it's, you know, it is decaying over time, sadly. This is a list you had before this subscribe, right? Because the yeah. subscribe feature is only done for a yep. few months. But you had built it up at DerekRimer.com, I believe, right? To a couple thousand. Okay. Yep. And I had emailed uh, probably pretty actively during the during the level season when I was building level and like sent kind of the retrospective about that to that list. And it was, at that point, it was still quite a warm list. So I'm still keeping it around and would, would love to add add more folks to it and at some point probably share more to that list. I still don't have like a full strategy in mind about what that would look like, but I want to keep my optionality open and I want to make sure that even if I decide to drop Twitter at some point, like I will have these email addresses of people who want to who want to keep up with what I'm doing. So, I just more did it for the for the placement honestly, to put it right there on anyone who's coming to my Twitter profile can can click subscribe really easily. And yeah, I probably like if I did want to send an update out, I looked at review and it just looks like a very simple tool for sending out basic small newsletters. So I think the plan right now is if, if I do end up mailing the list, I probably will do it through review, at least for like little one-off things. And then if I want to get more sophisticated with 
with my newsletter at some point down the line, then then I'll have to cross that bridge and figure out some kind of automation pipeline to pipe them over and explain the confusing confirmation email they got and all that jazz. Did you import your existing list into review? I did. I was going to say, yep. if you got 2,300 subscribers in the past few no. months, I'm going to add it to all. I don't care about yeah. this. Yeah, no. And that was that was partially partially so that the numbers would be representative of of my current newsletter list size, and I just didn't want it to start at zero on there. Look, kind of kind of sad. Join twelve others. <laughs> right, <laughs> so right, right. Uh, but then also like I was like, yeah, I'll probably will, I probably will use review. Like if I just want to send a little one off note, seems easy enough. Right. You're not doing sophisticated automations or anything. Cool. Well, let's let's go to another topic. I'm curious, you know, you've raised funding, right? From Tiny Seed and then from you did it a subsequent small raise. And you have money in the bank, presumably, and you're growing quickly. And I believe, you know, I don't know all your expenses. I do know your top line revenue because you're a Tiny Seed company. And I think you're profitable and probably throwing off, putting more cash into the bank than you're pulling out. So how do you think about that as a mostly bootstrap company that could just become profitable and just start pulling, raise your salary, pull out dividends, you could do all that, right? Versus reinvesting it, basically running at break even, maybe you could burn because you have money in the bank, and going for growth, right? Which is probably a longer, or it is, it's a longer term thing of like, well, the growth is what gets you, let's say, high valuation, in essence. How are you thinking about that? Yeah, it's a, it's a big topic. And I feel like my thinking on it has well, it continues to evolve, to be honest, as the business kind of goes through through different phases. But I think where I've landed with this, right, is that the key tension is that I'm both ambitious, but also want to make sure I'm architecting a journey that I can enjoy and that minimizes my stress as a founder. You know, and I think what you see happening a lot with people who are ambitious and optimized for growth is one, you see like very, very low founder salaries happening, which I'm always stunned when I hear these stories of like, like, well, I made I only made 50K for the first, you know, six or seven years of my business. And we lived on ramen. And like I just can't at, at the stage I'm at in life, like that would create a lot of personal stress, I think, in my life. And and then what you often hear folks in that kind of situation then really start to yearn for taking some money off the table and de-risking, maybe selling part of the company and doing a secondary or something like that to, to reap some of the, some of the rewards of, of what they've been building. And I may yearn for that at some point in the future, for sure, if I'm building SavvyCal for a really long time. But I think a lot of that for me can be mitigated by just making sure that one, I'm paying myself a healthy enough salary where I can live comfortably, I can live in the city, I can travel a bit, you know, I'm not watching every single grocery bill, that kind of stuff. And then basically anything beyond that, I'm totally okay with treating as like this this money, this revenue is there in service of of optimizing this asset that I'm building and aggressively reinvesting it. So I think that's for me is is kind of the balance that I'm seeking to strike. I do always have the I think it's a Jason Fried quote running through my mind, calm is in the black, you know. <laughs> um, so I think for me staying profitable or at or like borderline profitable is probably the goal. Like I don't really have an appetite for dipping too far taking huge bets where like we're burning a ton of the reserves for a long time, but I know that it's often the case that right when you get that extra bump in revenue, you you find another way to deploy that revenue and you kind of get back close to break even or maybe slightly unprofitable. And to me, that's 
that's totally, I think, within the realm of my risk profile. So yeah, I think that's that's kind of how I think of it is like make sure that I'm paying myself enough where life is not super hard and I'm not feeling a lot of personal stress or like I'm putting a lot of pressure on personal finances. And I think that will give me kind of the the energy to to go long on like the rest of the profits and make sure I'm reinvesting them. Yeah, I think that's a really healthy way to look at it. And you often hear me talk about lifestyle bootstrappers and then growth bootstrappers or ambitious, you know, whatever whatever the difference is. And the lifestyle businesses are awesome and they're built as cash flow machines. You know, they have these incredible 70, 80, 90% net margins where you're just kicking off cash. It's a great subscription. It's a great business model. It's the best business model in the world, in my opinion. And then that growth or ambition of like, I want to build something bigger, but also I want to build something really valuable. And I don't ever want to have to sell I want to be ready and able to if that time comes. And something that I tell bootstrappers or really any, just any SaaS founder, any startup founder is SaaS multiples, if you do decide to sell at some point, are they're just crazy. They're high. And even, you know, it wouldn't be the best time to sell right at this instant given the economy and all that, but they're high. And so I, give, I always give this example of like, once you have product market fit, adding 1K of MRR a month it's not that hard. You need the leads. It's just math, right? 1K, 2K. So for every thousand in MRR you add, you're adding 12K of annual recurring revenue, $12,000. And if an exit multiple, we'll just, you know, the range is four to eight, four to 10, whatever the range is, but let's just say five, selling at five times your ARR. So every month, if you're adding 1K of MRR, you're adding $60,000 to your net worth pre-tax, right? You have to pay tax on that. But like, just think about that. Where else can you, where else can we do that in our lives? Like I, if I were to buy a bunch of real estate, yeah, I know over, you know, there's tax advantage to this and that. Buy stocks, if I buy collectibles, whatever it is, like there's just no other place that you can get that kind of leverage. And I'll even go further because the example becomes kind of crazy when, I mean, you remember when we hit the point where Drip was doing, we were adding 5K a month, every month, right? And as you scale up, you do. You had 5K a month, you had 10K a month. And that sounds crazy in the early days, but you you just get the flywheels, you get the brand, whatever. 5K a month, 60K ARR, 5X multiple, every month, $300,000 to your net worth. Like this is, and this is not... Obviously, it's hard work to get there. It's hard to build a SaaS company. It's hard to get to product market fit. It's hard to do all these things. But once you are there, every month that you wait is literally adding 300K to your net worth. Every six months, if you're growing, you know, at this pace, almost $2 million. And that's exit multiple. So it's it's a little funny money, right? Not everybody can sell. And I'm not saying that everyone should be or that that's the end goal. I do like that it has been, I think, destigmatized in our space. I think 37 Signals did the bootstrapping space a little bit of a disservice in how they used to talk about never selling and also about not marketing and not tracking. And, you know, there's a lot of things I think they did, didn't need to do that a lot of companies and founders should be doing. But I do think it's been destigmatized because at this point, everybody sells. I didn't think, I didn't think ADPNR and Josh Pigford and MailChimp and, you know, who else has sold, you know, I didn't, we didn't plan to sell Drip. I mean, it just, it just happens at a certain point, right? Yeah. Yeah. I won't say it's inevitable, but I use the, I jokingly say everyone sells eventually. And I tr- don't truly mean everyone, so please don't email me. But it's interesting when you think about it that way in terms of if I take, much like Warren Buffett would always agonize over spending a dollar today because he knew what he could turn that dollar into in 5, 10, 30 years of compound interest. If you listen to his biography called Snowball, he talks about that. He's super cheap. Because he doesn't think of money today. He thinks of money in 40 years. Because he's that's how I think of SaaS revenue. If you're, you know, again, if it's a lifestyle business, cool, take all the cash out. But if you are going for that more growth stuff, every 
$1,000 you take out is $1,000 you're not using to grow that business. Again, every K is 60K of value. So yeah, I think that's something folks should keep in mind if they haven't already heard me rant about it. I like that's a nice, succinct way to kind of just describe what it tangibly means to be reinvesting and increasing the value of the asset, you know, because I've, I've had conversations with founders before who have really struggled with the notion of like, do I want to reinvest this or should I just pull it out, just dividend it out every quarter or whatever? And they're looking at this pile of money sitting in the bank and saying like, no, this is just, this is the spoils. I've earned this. I'm going to pull it out. I've tried to have this conversation before and probably not gotten to the crux of it as, as well. And it's as succinct as this, you know, where it's like, you can, you can pull that out now, but I'm basically putting my entire career energy right now into building this asset. And that money, if it adds to this recurring revenue machine, will yield so much more in the future. And I think the the balance there is like, it doesn't have to be, you don't have to be literally, you know, living a eating ramen lifestyle while you're building the asset. You can kind of have both once you get to a certain stage of, of traction where, and I think that's that's where I think for me, I just determined early on, it's important to not not be super, super thin on my salary. That's that's the base that I want to get to. And then everything else, it can just be freely reinvested. Glad you called that out because I was going to say that too. The flip side of what I said is you can go too far. You can be a cheap bastard. You can take a 1K out a month, live on ramen, and then your life sucks. And I don't, you shouldn't do that either, right? So it's just finding, yep. finding that balance. And it all, you know, this also supposes that like you, when you're in the situation where having more money will help you grow faster because you are deploying money intelligently in marketing experiments with, you know, with Corey Haynes and other stuff you're doing in product, you hired a developer, like each of these things is helping you grow faster. If you can't do that, <laughs> I've had businesses where they just plateaued and more money wouldn't help them grow faster, right? Because they were just in a small niche, they had high churn, whatever it was. And in those cases, then, you know, maybe it doesn't make sense to do it. But I say that's probably one of my fears is, and I don't, I don't foresee it happening, but it could happen where you suddenly have more money than ideas coming into the business. And that's a, I feel like that's a risky spot to be in if you're trying to really build something meaningful. And like, that's the, if the goal is to make this as meaningful as possible, then that's, that's a tricky spot. If you're like, don't know how to deploy the capital that's, that's coming in the door every month. Yeah. And that's where having, knowledgeable friends, mastermind, partners, advisors, investors, or even third parties, marketing strategists like a Corey Haynes, like an Asia Arangio, you know, going to people. Look, most of the calls I do with Tiny Seed Founders are around big strategic questions like this. Like two in the past two weeks, I have too much money in the bank. Like I have... 24 months of burn or something, you know what I mean? It's just like I'm too conservative and I'm trying to figure out where I should spend this. And then it's like, cool, let's walk through where you're spending it now. How big is your team? Where are your bottlenecks? You know, it's just a lot. It's a logic puzzle and pattern matching for me because I'm seeing where founders are, you know, succeeding. And it's definitely something I think we all, we all encounter. But if you get in that position, you would figure it out, right? Because you have knowledgeable people in your corner who would give you the advice to, to get past it. Those have got to be fun conversations to have, huh? Yeah, they are. I'm living my best life, man. This is exactly what I want to be doing right now, you know? And they're hard problem, man. I, you know, I have office hours twice a week and I'm exhausted at the end. Like it's so taxing because it's like all your glucose and it's like, I really want to help you make the right decision here. And so we're just like diving in and it's like, all right, tell me all this stuff. And so when I'm done, I'm like tapped out, can't record a podcast today, you know, can't do whatever, but they're super meaningful. And what's cool is it's working with founders who are getting done. 
because the next time I talk to them, they've done what we talked about versus sometimes you, whatever it is on a podcast or you meet someone at an event and you give them all this advice and then they just don't do anything. And it feels like, why did I waste all that good glucose on that? Why did I offer to help if there's just going to be excuses why you can't do it? And this is something about people like Anar and I talk about this a lot, like what are the, some factors of successful founders? And one of them is that they bias for action. They just do, they do stuff. And even if it's going to fail, they try a lot of things and um, it is fun. I definitely enjoy it. I had a question jotted down in my notes that actually the last couple of times we've recorded, it's just been in my back pocket. I feel like you probably mostly addressed it is the question was, are you scratching your maker itch? By being an investor in companies through Tiny Cedar, like, are you missing the SaaS game, like being in the arena? That's a really good question, man. Yeah. I'm not missing, for the most part, I'm not missing the SaaS game. I, my maker itch now is scratched by recording podcasts. And I don't know if folks have noticed, but like over the past year or two, the podcast used to be Mike and I chatting about things and we would talk through an article. We do so now I'm like pouring myself into the podcast, like the solo episodes I do, or even conversations like this, where I'm really trying to bring it like the deep stuff. I'm the philosophical and the like tactical and the strategy stuff. I'm trying to bring it more. I'm also like finishing up a book. So that's very maker-y. And that's been pain. It's brutal and painful. I don't, I like having written books. I do not like writing them. Yep. <laughs> but that's about all this stuff. So I'm trying to bring my ideas there. Writing talks. I'm, you know, I'm giving talks every couple of months. And then the, the advising, the consulting, they're still really hard problem. Not consulting, but like uh, advising and mentorship, right? Of tiny seed companies. Yeah. There's still so many hard problems. And I feel like every week there's something new that challenges me to think about it, this whole thing in a different way of like, oh man, I don't know, I haven't heard that one before. Now, how do we creatively get to a, a reasonable path forward for you? So that's nice. And it feels, it is fulfilling because it's not just, oh, I'm going to give you advice. I then see the progress and I see the results of it, even if I don't have, you know, I don't do the work myself, but I, I am still vicariously maybe living a little through the founders because I see the success they had and I'm able to celebrate like, man, I was... I was a small part, you know, I was able to play a small part in that and that feels good. That's awesome. Yeah, I think you've you've remarked to me before, probably on the podcast too, that like you've been able to sort of hone in on what's the most valuable use of your time, you know, if you're not behind a mic or or advising some a founder or whatever the the short list is, then you're probably doing the wrong thing. And I think that's always food for thought for me, like Am I using my time in the best way possible? And of course, as an action-biased founder, I'm wearing ex- many, many hats and, and bouncing between a lot of things. But yeah, there's, there's a lot of fulfillment that comes from knowing that your, your time is being used optimally and you're, you're obviously uh, still taking on a lot of challenges. Like, these, like you said, these are not easy conversations to, to strategize and problem solve. But getting to deploy everything you've learned from a career of building these things uh, has got to be pretty fulfilling. Yeah, it really is. It really is. And I'm less stressed day to day than I have been. And even though the stakes, I still see the stakes are high, you know, the stakes for each of you as founders, the stakes we're raising, you know, we're raising venture funds and we're writing big checks and there's money moving around and whatever there's, and there's always operations and stuff to deal with, but I am less stressed than probably any company I've ever run. And I think it's part of that. So I finally, like there's a maturity that I wished I'd found in my early thirties, but it took me, you know, it took me a long time, but also I love the work. So it's good. I'm happy. I feel like I've Working my best job, living my best life, you know. It just feels good. Till I go on Twitter. No. <laughs> yeah, stay off of Twitter <laughs> if you want to keep that. <laughs> uh, no, it's all it's all good. I do as as we wrap up here, 
I do still. I just, people are saying I should be on TikTok, Garrick, and I don't want to get on TikTok. Yeah. Oh, man. It's like, oh, just yeah. be me. You can get like a million views by just talking about SaaS or something. And it's like, really, can I? And are those views going to, you know, I'm just so skeptical about it. Yeah. Probably because I really don't want to do it. So I'm coming up with skeptical excuses. I, what I should do is probably test it out. But yeah. I, I don't even, I downloaded the app and I cannot bring myself to even create an account because I'm like, is this a good idea? Man, yeah, and it seems like you would need to get the right the right advice on like what is the what is the exact like format of video? Like is it supposed to be super attention grabbing or can it be a little more in depth? Like is do TikTok people cons- like how do you set yourself up for success on a platform like TikTok? And I don't even know the first I go hire a consultant. Yeah, is what I yeah, would do, you know, or yeah. hire someone or at least talk to someone who has had success at it in the in the B2B space, which as far as I can tell is zero people because everyone I talk to is always like, well, yeah, but we're like kind of B2C or it's like we're B2 prosumer or whatever. It's not like, oh, so it's not going after hard, you know, or it's B2, B2 wantapreneur, right? It's B2 like aspiring entrepreneur versus I kind of want to talk about how difficult it is to start a company rather than blow smoke up your ass and tell mm-hmm. you, you know, that it's this easy thing and you can make all this money online. So yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I've, I definitely feel the influences of TikTok. Like, I don't know if you've noticed, I mean, you probably spent a ton of time on Twitter recently, but the algorithm had, feels to me like it's been shifting more towards trying to surface viral videos in general. Like there's a lot more of that mm-hmm. kind of based on, I don't even know what they're basing it on. They say based on your likes or whatever, but you know, it's the secret sauce and they're surfacing videos that most of them are just like comedic and it's like, okay, that's funny, you know, whatever, but also just feels slightly strange because it's just a, it is a noticeable shift in the type of content but you can you can feel the effects of kind of that the TikTok format bleeding into other other mediums too. So yeah, I think so. Instagram as well. I'm not on there very much, but you can. There's a lot of TikToks that get reposted to Instagram, I guess. And yeah, yeah, it is. It's noticeable. Well, sir, thanks for hanging out with me and uh, chatting again. Folks want to keep up with you, Derek Reimer on Twitter, and of course, you're working on SavvyCal.com. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming back every week and listening to Startups for the Rest of Us, whether you have listened to six episodes or 600. I hope that you enjoy the time and the thought that I put into this show. And in case you missed it, I was able to wrestle with the RSS feed goblins and able to get the last 300 episodes of the show now in the RSS feed. That has always been a problem because we have full transcripts in our posts and I was able to, it doesn't matter, technically finally work around it. So 300 episodes, which is the max that uh, Apple Podcasts allows, are in the feed. So if you want to go back and reminisce down memory lane, back what that's almost six years of, of shows, you can go back a lot further than you could prior. As I said at the top of the show, if you haven't left a rating or a review, it'd be amazing. Other than that, I'll be back in your ears again next Tuesday. This is Rob signing off from episode 622. 